0: Well, good morning again to everyone. Welcome to those who are watching online this message, and welcome to part one of this series that's going to be centered around a man in the Old Testament um, named Nehemiah. I wanted to give you a little bit of background on the genesis of this series. Um, It's actually a study, a series, a message series that has been on my heart to do for at least five to six years. And the reason why we haven't done it until now is because I had been waiting for the perfect time to do this series, the perfect time in our church history, and uh, that perfect time is right now. Um, If you have been around Bethlehem at all, you know that we're worshiping here at Lakeville North High School Um, Because it's part of a transition plan to build a a brand new facility with more space and more opportunities to make an impact. And that the the story behind our move is quite long and there's a lot of details and we don't have time for the whole story. Uh, But I, I did want to give you a long story short. In 2011, Um, We were very fortunate to be able to buy 19 acres of land right in the middle, the heart of Lakeville, right next to Lakeville North High School, right next to the parking lot where you parked. And the plan had been and has been to to build there. Well, we're going to be able to start to do that, it would seem, with... in at least a month, if not sooner. So there's a lot to celebrate and and a lot to be excited about and happy about. This build is part of why we're doing this series. Let me explain it a little bit more. Um, A couple nights ago, I was at an area event, and a a pastor uh, friend, an area pastor friend of mine, um, came up to me and asked about the building project as pastors don't talk necessarily about fun stuff. They just talk about church stuff, which is, which is fun, but you know what I mean. Um, and he asked how it was going. And I said, great, you know, when we're probably going to be starting. And, and then he, he said this. He said, Ben, I bet you can't wait till the building project is over so you can get going with real ministry again. And for some of you, you probably know what he meant by that, but let me fill in the blanks in case you don't. What he was hinting at is something that can happen to a lot of churches. That when they're in the middle of a building project, especially a big one like this, that all of the focus, all of the emphasis, all of the energy is around getting that thing built. And what gets lost is the real reason why we're here as Christians and as a church, which is something entirely different. So for instance, you may not have known that our mission statement is written on the back of the service handout that you received, but it's there, and I'll, I'll tell you that never once has it ever looked like this, to lead people to buy real estate at a good price and build a super cool state-of-the-art buildings, all right? Now that could be a good mission for a business, but that's never been Our mission, And we need to be very careful that even in a short time frame, like a couple years or longer, that it doesn't become our mission. Because the mission that God gave to us has nothing to do with building. Did you know we could accomplish God's mission without building a single building? I think this time frame is testament to that, isn't it? Right? Our mission is given to us by God himself. The way that we say it, so that you'll remember it, is just very simply to lead people to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we have services. That's why we go out into our community, to lead the people of our communities to Jesus. And whenever a church forgets that and becomes about something else, they're off track. And so... Our first fill-in for today is a good reminder for all building projects. A good church building project is about more than walls. A on-point church building project has to be about more than walls. It, by definition, includes walls. Of course a building project is going to have walls, but it has to be more than walls than that. In fact, the walls are secondary to the primary purpose and mission. You see, if, if this building project that we're going to be starting, in, and it's going to get real very soon as we see dirt moving and structure going up, if it's all about that building and making us comfortable and giving us a place to go and, and making it so that we don't have to come early and stay late to set up and tear down, you know, type of thing, if it's all about that, we are off base. And I have led you badly. But if we remember that what we're doing over there isn't even about the walls really, but the walls are just a tool to share Jesus, then this building project can be a faith-developing, life-centering, purpose-driving event that I don't want to get done or over. I do in a certain way, but it's not keeping us from anything. It's just part of what we are already doing, leading people to Jesus. Enter Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man in the Old Testament who actually was asked to run a building project. And and actually what we're going to find out today is he wasn't, asked as much as he volunteered. And as we, over the next two months, take a look at Nehemiah and this building project, there are going to be some amazing lessons that we're going to learn, that we're going to grow with, so that this building project for us never becomes just about the walls, but it always is about more than that. So at the beginning of a series, the, the first sermon, and the first preacher gets the privilege of being able to cram a whole lot of world history into just a little bit of time. Because if we don't have the context of Nehemiah, the whole series doesn't really mean as much. And so I'm going to attempt to give you the historical background for Nehemiah. Before I do that, though, there are some of you who are new to church, new to the Bible, new to Christianity, and you've thought that every religious book, whether it be the Bible, uh, the, the, the... The Quran, the Book of Mormon is is written in the same way. And that really what they are are fables or, or stories. Let me tell you, the Bible is written totally different than a fable or a story. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible is a record of history. And how God weaved his plan throughout history. Did you know... That secular historians learn about world history from the Bible, which they don't believe the main part of it, that is Jesus as Savior, but they learn about history from the Bible? That's interesting. Did you know that there's never been an archaeological find that has actually disproven something in Scripture, but instead, every archaeological find has only boosted or bolstered what the Bible already says? I'm trying to tell you, this event with Nehemiah isn't just some story, it actually happened. And, and when it happened was about 400 years before Jesus was born. But the background to Nehemiah that I'd like to share actually starts in about 1000 BC. So at that time, about 1000 years before Christ, um, the country of Israel, the nation of the Jews, Was at its all time pinnacle and height. They would never be more powerful than at that time, that kingdom of Israel. This is when kings like David and like Solomon, some of you have heard those names, this is when they ruled. And and God had promised that He was going to guide the Jews, the, the descendants of Abraham, that He was going to guard their nation because He had promised that a Savior would come and that he chose the Jewish nation from which that Savior would come. Nothing be, not because there's anything special about the, the Jewish nation, just because God in his grace had to choose someone, and he chose Abraham and, and his descendants. Well, they're at their all-time peak as a people and as a nation. They're as plentiful as the sand on the seashore, like was promised to Abraham. But there was something real rotten about the nation, and that is that their following of God began to become less and less. And they they turned their backs against God and God sent many warnings through prophets and they would listen for a while and then they would go back into their old ways. And so what eventually happened in about 930 BC is that the kingdom split. And we have the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The the northern kingdom chose uh, the mascot of the panther And the southern kingdom chose the cougar as their mascot. And that's where Lakeville got it from. The cougars and the panthers. That didn't really happen. But there were two kingdoms. There were two kingdoms. Um, And you'd think that things would get better. But it didn't. It actually got worse. The northern kingdom especially, their decline was like almost immediate. And they fell hard and they fell far from God. And so even with warnings, they did not listen. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom ceased to exist. And a powerful nation in the world at that time, the Assyrians, conquered the northern kingdom. Judah, or the southern kingdom, their decline was a little bit, should I say, longer. But they ended up being in the same place that the northern kingdom was eventually. And that would be with their backs towards God. And so, in 586 BC, the, the southern kingdom, sometimes called Judah, the area around Jerusalem and it included Jerusalem, was conquered by the Babylonians. Maybe some of you have heard of the Babylonian captivity. This is what happened here, where the Babylonians come in and they destroyed Israel. They they destroyed the amazing temple that uh, Solomon built. King Solomon. Uh, they took all the artifacts, carried it back to Babylon. Um, They destroyed Jerusalem, it was in shambles, and took most of the people with them back to Babylonia or Babylon as a as slave labor. Well, in this entire story, God's stated plan never changed. His stated plan was that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, that the area around Jerusalem, and Bethlehem's only like five miles away, would be very important to the salvation story. That this area in, near Jerusalem would be theirs. And his plan for that never ended, even though his people were taken into captivity. Well, something interesting happened. This, this gets really interesting, and we're going to come back to it later too. This is the part many of you, maybe all of you don't know. In 930 B.C., The next great kingdom in world history was the kingdom of Persia. And one of their kings, their their, their first king, at least in this conquering time, was a king named Cyrus. Okay? When Cyrus was king of Israel and, and Persia for only just a little bit, he did this curious thing that made no political sense at all. You know what he did? Cyrus essentially decreed that any Jew, those of Abrahamic uh, descent, would be able to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild it. And in fact, he actually commissioned these Jews that he was going to let leave to rebuild the temple. He told them to do it. He told Persians to give them gold and silver and animals and actually took out the artifacts from the temple that the Babylonians had taken and you know, put them into storage. He took them out of mothballs and sent them back with the Jews to be used in the temple again. And one has to ask the question, why would he do that? Because it makes zero political sense. You are not only losing a whole bunch of free slave labor, but you're paying them to leave. Why would he do that? Cyrus. Well, Ezra... One of the contemporaries of Nehemiah tells us in the first verse of his book, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and in order to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah, who was one of God's preachers or prophets, the Lord, God, Moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. Why did Cyrus do that which made no sense? Because God had a plan and God was involved. Do you know that sometimes God guided Israel by making waters part? Sometimes he worked more quietly by moving a powerful king's heart to demand that people go back to Jerusalem and how that fits so perfectly with God's ultimate plan of salvation for the world and the birth of the Savior in that very area. So over the next 90 years or so, Jews began to trickle da- back to Israel and to Jerusalem. There were three major waves of Jews that went back to Israel from Persia. Uh, the first was led by a man named uh, Zerubbabel. And, you know, that's just like a fun name to say. And because some of you don't like history at all, and I need to make sure you're with me, we're going to say it together. And really get the B's, the bubble, okay? It's so, all right. One, two, three. Zerubbabel. Man, you can do better. One more time. One, two, three. Zerubbabel. There we go. So Zerubbabel was the leader of the first wave, and he was essentially in charge with rebuilding the temple. The, the next wave was under the leadership of uh, Ezra, the, the priest in Israel. In fact, they, would, they say that at the time of Ezra, there was no priest that was better than Ezra. Um, and so he had some spiritual reforms that he was in charge of. He was looking at not uh, growing the temple, but growing people's hearts. And then you thought I'd never get there, okay? Now we come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was in charge of the third major wave of Israelites to return to Israel and to the area of Jerusalem, and that's who we're going to be concentrating on over the next two months. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, goes like this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, the the 20th year being of the the rule of the reigning king, which at that time no longer was Cyrus, but was a, a man named Artaxerxes. While I, Nehemiah, was in the citadel or the city of Susa, Hanani, one of Nehemiah's brothers, came from Judah, which again is the name for that area around Jerusalem, with some other men that had been there. And I questioned them or I asked them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, that remnant being those who never came to Persia and Babylon at all. Some actually remained there, a very few. This remnant also describing those who had already gone back in the first two waves. He asked them about this remnant and also about the city of Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Trouble and disgrace. Trouble and disgrace. Here's why. Why trouble? Well, the wall around a city at this time was the chief way that the people inside the city would be safe. With no wall, at least no good wall, they were open to any band of warriors or soldiers or bandits that wanted to kill, steal, and whatever else bandits do. Okay? So they were in trouble from a safety perspective. They also were disgraced. Um, this part is probably hard for us to culturally get our minds around. Um, but back in that time, the glory of your wall and how great it was reflected the glory of your kingdom and your city. The glory or how great your wall was reflected the glory or the greatness of the God who you worshipped. And so in the the eyes and minds of the people around Jerusalem, this people living in Jerusalem, the relatives of Nehemiah, who also was a Jew, their reputation was that of disgrace. Nehemiah continues, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." Nehemiah's reaction to the report of Hanani, his brother, about the the walls being torn down and the trouble and the disgrace of his people near Jerusalem was that of weeping and, and fasting. He was, as our theme says, he was heartbroken. Nehemiah in Susa was heartbroken. And the question that we're really gearing the rest of this message around is the question... I'm going to ask now. The question is why? Why would Nehemiah be heartbroken about Jerusalem? Now, you might think you have an answer, but let me just tell you this. Nehemiah had a great life. The last verse of our section in chapter 1 says that he was cupbearer of the king. Now, what does that mean? Like, he brought a glass to the king? Yes, That seems like a very menial, like, low end of the totem pole type of job. The truth is, this is is one of the most powerful positions in the entire country. Some say that he was in the top five most powerful people in Persia, this Jew named Nehemiah. The reason being is the king trusted the cupbearer with his life. Anything that would touch the king's lips had to first touch the cupbearer's lips. So as to make sure nothing in there was meant to harm the king. The king trusted the cupbearer with his life, and so in response, that cupbearer had a very high position in the country. Here's what I'm saying. Nehemiah had a posh life. He had the best of the best. You think, oh, he's in Babylonian captivity, now Persian captivity. No, no. He had an awesome life. The best of the best the world had to offer in many ways. And he was in Susa, which was 800 miles away from Jerusalem. That's like the distance between here and Nashville, if you Googled it. And there was no Twitter or there was no social media to keep him up to speed on what was going on in Jerusalem. He could have very easily, because it was out of sight, put it out of mind. Why was he so heartbroken? It did not affect him, really. Let's read the rest of the chapter. There's an answer in there. Then I said, Lord, the God of heavens, and the rest of this chapter is a prayer. The great and awesome God, you who keeps your covenant, your promise to love with those who love him and to keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, Lord, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant Nehemiah as I'm praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, the sins we Israelites, including me and my father's family, have committed against you. You know, that, that's... Uh, It's a very biblical way, obviously, to come before the Lord like we do every week, or almost every week, in confession. It's the first thing that Nehemiah makes mention of. We have acted wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember, Lord, the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you, my people, the Jews, are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. You you know what? Nehemiah is, is sort of... Recalling, Lord, you keep your promises. We're living in the scatter, is what Nehemiah is saying. What you had said would happen, did. We are scattered. But you also promised, if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, you know where Susa was? The farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So Nehemiah is also recalling God's plan, which was, even though we wander and are scattered, ultimately, you had promised to bring us back to Jerusalem. To the, that's the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, as a temple, and for the birthplace nearby of the coming Savior, who would be named Jesus. The people there, they're your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. You, you've redeemed us before. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer Of your servants who delight in revering your name, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, i.e., the king of Persia named Artaxerxes. What Nehemiah is saying at the end of this section, and we're going to get into it much more next week, is that Artaxer um, Nehemiah was going to go before Artaxerxes and ask him if he, Nehemiah could lead a group of people to Jerusalem because he had a building project to be a part of. He had a building project to do, rebuilding the walls of God's city, Jerusalem. The question I had was, why would Nehemiah's heart be broken? The prayer is telling. Do you know why? Well, a big part of it is that Nehemiah understood as he explained through those verses of his prayer what God is up to in the world and he wanted to be part of it. Nehemiah gave us a great history of Israel. And he was holding God to his promises because he knew in that, that verse we looked at that he was going to establish his name in Jerusalem. Nehemiah understood what God's primary objective in the world is and he wanted to be a part of God's plan in this world. So sign me up. I'm going to be a part of this building project even though my position in life might be in danger if I go before Artaxerxes. And so Nehemiah's heart broke because he knew that God's heart was broken. Nehemiah had a desire to rebuild Jerusalem because he knew that that was God's desire. In essence, maybe God's desire for eternity and for as long as the world has been around could be summed up this way in our next fill-in. That God's greatest desire has always been the deliverance of his people. Not that he takes away all of our problems, although he does sometimes. Not that he makes us rich and famous, although that would be nice. Not that we always get along with our in-laws or whoever it is, the people that were whatever. But that would be nice, right? But that's not why he came. He came for the eternal deliverance of his people. And you see that in the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chronicled that, didn't he? That God guiding Israel so that Jesus would be born exactly in the area where God promised he to be born because God's greatest desire has always been the deliverance of his people. And then when Jesus came to this world, we see that that was his heartbeat, his echo, his life on this earth. Let me just say it this way. You would not choose it. Like, you know how we we get kind of upset and complain about our lives? Like, Jesus' life on earth? 33 years of a lot of yuckiness. I can say that at church, right? Yuckiness, right? It was horrible. He had nothing. And yeah, there were times where the crowds cheered him, but it ended with his death. Why? Why? Because God's greatest desire has always been the deliverance of his people. And fast forward 2,000 years, guess what? God never changes. His promises never change. His desire never changes. Sometimes we get confused about how God can be good and this can happen in my life. God's greatest desire has always been the deliverance of his people to eternity in heaven. And he works in ways in our lives to keep us close to him because that is, through Jesus, the only way that that happens. Deliverance. Eternity. His greatest desire is deliverance of his people. God has this amazing love for his people. And do you know what? When it comes to his desire for the people of this world, there's this amazing purpose that God has given us. I I thought about it this way. It's not a fill-in, but it might as well could have been, Uh, up on the screen. God gives those who know the role to go. God's given those who know about Jesus and deliverance the role to go and share. In fact, we are the only plan, guys. There's no other plan. There's no Bose system in the sky. The angels are not going to come out and tell people we're it. The people who know, Jesus said, need to go. Do you know what the angels throw parties over? Not when you get a new TV. He throws parties when someone who is going to hell comes to know Jesus as their Savior and their eternity gets changed. Do you know what the father killed a fattened calf for? When someone who was lost was found Do you know what we have the privilege to be a part of? Those who know God's plan throughout history, like Nehemiah knew God's plan and recounted it, we have the privilege of being a part of God's plan. Nehemiah knew what God was up to and wanted to be a part of it. We know what God is up to in this world. Deliverance of his people. Man, we have the opportunity to be a part of it. So let me ask you, What breaks your heart? It's a good question, isn't it? Do you know what's true? Usually, the things that break my heart, and maybe it's true for you as well, are when things happen to me that are really close to me, to the people that are close to me. Do you know what's also true? That every single person since the fall into sin has daily had to battle the temptation to put ourselves first instead of what God demands and commands which is to love God and to love others. And you see this in kids from almost their first words when the neighbor boy comes over and Johnny won't let him use the tractor because it's mine. As people who have a sinful nature we daily battle thinking about ourselves first and usually the things that break our hearts the most are the things that are closest to us and some of that makes sense and yes you know when something happens across the world like it it takes us aback, and we we pray which is great and and we maybe even send money to disaster relief that's great but does it break our heart not usually not usually What breaks your heart? Yeah, I see this selfishness trickle down a little bit, even into into Christians and and into their view of their faith. Let me tell you this. Your life with Jesus starts with the new life he gives to you and how that changes everything. But if it's all about that, if that's it for you, we might be saved, but we're probably not following Because God has required those who know with the role to go. What breaks our hearts? What keeps us up at night? What have we centered our lives around? Um, A statement here. A broken heart stirs strong actions, not just strong feelings. (laughs) If your heart is truly broken, it's not just going to result in, in, in feeling sad. It's going to result in doing something about it. You know, if you, if you saw someone on the road, let's say a child that you don't even know, but you see them on the road, a road, and you see a car coming, what would you do? None of us would stand there, right? One way or another, we would try to get that kid out of the road. Road. You know why? Because our hearts get broken by a child who might get hit by a car. Are our hearts broken about people in your neighborhoods and in your community that don't realize who Jesus is and what he's done? Do you know when our hearts are broken? when a broken heart stirs stirs strong actions. Um, Our hearts are broken when someone like Nehemiah who lives 800 miles away from what's going on in Jerusalem decides, hey, I might have a nice life but I'm going to give it all up and start a building project if Artaxerxes will will let me. I'm going to travel to Jerusalem because I know that God grieves the walls being torn down and I do too. Our You know what, when hearts are broken, I see hearts broken with a church that decides that after being in a building that they love and a piece of property that they love for 40 years, that they're going to sell it with uh, no church yet to be built um, and to, to worship in a high school. Which, by the way, like, like, if this is the worst that we have to suffer for God, um, I mean, we've got it pretty good. I mean, there's air conditioning and lights. And, I mean, like, let's not, like, think we're giving up too much by coming to Lakeville North High School, you know. But it was a big decision, wasn't it? And, and families and people sacrificing maybe a vacation or their Starbucks or something, I don't know, to, to give towards this building and the things that we have to do together. I see hearts broken in that way. I see hearts broken when we daily recognize the two commands of God, love him and love others. And we are willing as a church and as a person to put our personal agendas and our personal preferences and our personal schedules aside to prioritize people that don't know Jesus in our lives and in our community. That's the heartbeat of this church. And as long as I get to be pastor here We're not going to do it perfectly, but it won't change. I will push on our leaders. I will push on you to make sure that what God celebrates is what we celebrate. That what God is about, the saving of the world, is what we are about. The lost being found. And we have this tremendous privilege to be ones who know and now who have the role to go. In fact, I'll say it this way. If... If you're someone who thinks that the primary purpose, the primary purpose, and the only purpose of the church is to be served and to cater, the church should cater to everything I want. First thing I'll say is, as, as, if the church grows to be bigger than one person, we can't cater to everything you want. So we can either stay at one or, or get bigger, right? And if that's your thought about church, you're probably going to eventually feel uncomfortable here. But if... If you are passionate about the lost and coming together with a group of people to be filled up with Jesus and then to go out and to share Jesus and that saving people, the message is greater than my personal preferences, then you're going to love this church because that is what the mission is that God has given us to do. And so as a way of sort of giving you a takeaway for today, Here's my last fill-in for you. In order to feel like God feels, that would be heartbroken for people who don't know Jesus as their Savior, let's begin to see like God sees. What if we changed our vision for the people around us? Let me give you one quick example of what I mean by that. So a couple weeks ago, I was uh, trying to check out at Aldi's and... um, One of my strength finders is competition. So I always, I don't know, I just try to find the lane that I get out the fastest. I may not be going anywhere or need to get anywhere, but that's just, I just need to win. Um, Which is really weird and is a a sin in there. And I know, I'm I'm a work in progress, okay? Um, But what happened was I picked the wrong lane because the person, the lady in front of me, Had like just a couple things, so I thought she'd be fast. But then she decided to do what no American does anymore, which is to use cash. And she used cash, and she used quarters, and nickels, and pennies. And I'm just like, in my mind, I didn't say anything, because pastors, you can't say anything. You just think it, you know? And so I'm like, inside of me, I'm not proud of this, I am mad. I don't know why, I just am and then I, I, I look at this fill in the blank this week and I think about Nehemiah and I think about how is it that we can be more on target with having a passion for the lost and I'm thinking, well, what if I just changed my view and thought, hmm, I don't know what happened in her life today or what's going on in her life. What, what if I just viewed her not as someone who's stopping me from getting through the line but instead someone who God loves, who Jesus died for? That changes things. It changes how you view the neighbor down your street who just gives you a hard time. It changes how you view people at work, at school. It changes everything. Let's start there today. Let's start viewing everyone around us as blood-bought souls by Jesus. And let's begin to grow our passion with God's help for the role that he's given us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message from Nehemiah, his prayer, and and being able to look a little bit into what was going through his heart and mind. Lord, as we live life, it's so easy to get distracted by things that aren't really that important. Help our hearts to break the way your hearts, your heart breaks. Help us to, to have passion around that which you have passion, the deliverance of your people. And may we be so excited about our own personal deliverance and forgiveness that we can't wait to go share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.